As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. And I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and we thank you for joining us on a hopefully somewhat less windy Monday in London. In the studio with us, I am very excited because we have the Home Secretary's far younger and more attractive sister, Alison Rudd. And down the line, even more of a dish, it's Paul Hurst. Later on, we'll be discussing Liverpool surviving a scare and the prospect of a 48-team World Cup. But we start at Molyneux, where Wolves booked a date at Wembley with Watford in the FA Cup semi-final. Nuno's men beating Manchester United 2-1 in the quarterfinals on Saturday night. Alison, this was a victory that was fully merited, wasn't it? Absolutely. I don't know. I, I suspect a lot of people watching it weren't even, wouldn't have even considered this to be an upset. Generally, they're a team that would set up very well to face United, especially United under Solskjaer. They are not afraid to bore you to death for as long as it takes to get under the skin of the opposition. It was a pretty poor opening 40 minutes or so. And I think United was sort of flummoxed by the home team not coming at them. It resulted in a kind of stalemate. But Wolves do this a lot. They will play for as long as it takes in a very conservative way. And the minute they see a chink of light, a chance to counterattack... Uh, they'll go for it. They grew visibly in confidence and audacity as the match went on. At no point in that 90 minutes did I feel United would stage something approaching a serious or threatening comeback. I'm tempted to say it was a masterclass of tactics, but I think this is what Wolves do most of the time anyway. And it's why their record against uh, the top six is the best in the in the Premier League. They're just very good at annoying the hell out of teams that expect you to do something a bit more. Well, what about Raul Jimenez? How good is he? He's having a great 2019, we could say. I think he's, I mean, beyond his goals, I think he really fits Nuno very, very well. You've seen him both playing as a, as a centre forward and a front three. I saw him in person when they were at Stamford Bridge in a two. It's like the guy's got eyes on the back of his head with his movement, with the runs that he make. He gets great service and, you know, and he converts. Um, what's, I was just thinking about what, what Allison said about the organisation personally I like what Wolves do better. I mean, they were really good against United, and United were very poor. I like what they do better against teams outside the top six. I don't think that, you know, there's any great organization in in being defensive and having people back and, and, and herring. That's kind of what you expect. Now, they maybe do it better than other teams, but also because they have better players. Where I found them more impressive is when they go 3-4-3, the way he manages to maintain that balance 
with a midfield two of Ruben Neves and Moutinho, who Ruben Neves is exceptional. Moutinho is a tremendous passer and stuff, but he doesn't have, he probably never had that kind of athleticism. And obviously now he's older as well. And the reason that works is because of the front three, because of the, the of the work that that the two wide men do. That when he goes three four three, the wingers don't just go and turn into kind of sort of auxiliary uh, wide men. They they go back and they really help the two in midfield. I think that part is really impressive of what he does. The semi-finals see Wolves take on Watford and Manchester City play Brighton. Paul, how would City feel about the prospect of Wolves then in the final? They are probably the strongest of the other three contenders, aren't they? But I still think that City wouldn't be that bothered about facing them. They, they were the first team to take points off City this season. Uh, they drew a Molyneux uh, 1-1, uh, I think it was early in the season, but then they came 3-0 at home. So I just think you know, City are on in that kind of groove at the moment that they probably fancy beating anyone, to be honest. So, But they are definitely, after watching them on Saturday, Wolves, they are definitely the most... You know, the strongest contenders outside of City, but you know City are you know overwhelming favourites to win this. Hirsty, I want to ask you since it's a nice transition to United too. Um, a former United manager pointed out that Manchester City are having a tremendous season, but they've also been really, really, really lucky with the draws that they've had in their cup runs in the League Cup: Oxford United, Fulham, Leicester, Burton Albion. And Chelsea in the FA Cup, Rotherham, Burnley, Newport County, Swansea, Brighton. And in the Champions League, Lyon, Shakhtar, Donetsk, Hoffenheim, Schalke, and, uh, of course, now Tottenham, Hotspur. Now, there's a couple good teams in there. Do you want to guess who the former United manager was? Was it Ron Atkinson? Yeah, funnily enough, no. I'll give you a hint. It was retreated by Duncan Castles. Yes, uh, I saw Jose's quotes on it. I mean, he's, he's got a point, hasn't he? When you read those... Um, those teams out when you look at those teams you, you know they are relatively easy aren't they a lot of them have been at home as well uh, you know Rotherham at home you know that was really a walk in the park for them I mean you, you suppose you could could say that matches like Newport County away are also always you know potential banana skins and they did lose it at Wigan last season as well so yeah, there are a couple of difficult ones in there but in terms of the matches on the way to the final they've, they've, they've had it easy haven't they um, so yeah I, I, you can't deny with, with what Mourinho's saying um, but you know that's that's not their fault is it you know it's luck or draw they've, they've got it and, and, and other teams haven't I think this is one of the good things about Wolves isn't it that they have played a strong team in the FA Cup and their reward you know is, is a place in the semi-finals so you look at it it always makes me despair when you see you know, the likes of Leicester and Newcastle feel weakened teams in this competition, particularly Leicester. I mean, this is a this is a chance for a team like Leicester to to win a trophy. You know, Brighton have got to the semi final, so you know why why aren't teams like Leicester? You know, Club World didn't put a, kind of a strong team out earlier in the competition, and they you know they they went out. So you, you might as well, if you're playing a, a mid to low ranking Premier League team, you might as well be playing. Uh, championship or League One team in the FA Cup uh, because of the, the weakened teams that they put out. United were bad. I mean, I, I don't know there's any two ways about it. It was, Solskjaer said, I think it was his worst performance since he took over. I don't know. I thought they were pretty bad against Paris Saint-Germain at home as well. Um, and even though they won, they weren't great against Paris Saint-Germain away either. There's a million mitigating circumstances, I think, with the with the injuries that they've had. I also think Rashford's probably overworked as well um, at this stage. 
Is there any reason to be concerned? I mean, he's got a fix, right? I think they did, they did need this international break. I think they are looking very tired. They've got a lot of injuries at the moment, uh, particularly Rashford, like you say, does look very, very tired. They, they were poor on Saturday. It was just like watching the, you know, the, the Jose Mourinho age of of United um, towards the end of his spell. I mean, defensively they were they were shambles really. Um, Sergio Romero had a had a good game in goal, made a couple of good saves. Luke Shaw for the second goal just. You know, it was completely shrugged, easily shrugged off the ball, uh, and that was really, you know, unlike the defense, the United defence that we've seen up until now under under Solskjaer. So yeah, it, it is a bit of concerning. But you look at their matches after they've, they've got Watford after the international break. They should beat them at home in theory, um, and then Wolves again after that. So they need to win those two matches to get back on track because it's you know two defeats in a row one to Arsenal, one in the Cup, is not that bad. But then, you know, three or four defeats in a row, then, then the alarm bells will probably start to ring. Gab said he didn't think they'd been playing brilliantly up until the um, Wolves result. But do you not think, Paul, there's a... I mean, you're, you see, you're with them a lot, so you, you, you can pick up the vibe. But that victory over PSG, which was historic and no one expected it, and the history books said that this cannot happen and won't happen, and it felt like they'd just you know, won the Champions League. Does that not just eat up so much emotional energy that you're left feeling that everything else you do is is just a bit pedestrian? I think it does, yeah, I think you're right. I think, you know, that is you know, they jumped the shark at that moment, didn't they? they they're not gonna they're not gonna get any better than that. Not really. Not not when they've drawn um, Barcelona in the next round. I just thought that is a difficult you know, night to top they're not going to get a better night than that and it did drain them a lot emotionally and physically just just watching them you know celebrate afterwards you looked as if they were you know they really enjoyed themselves obviously but they did put a lot into that match so I suppose there is inevitably going to be a hangover when it comes to you know the, the few matches after that but in, in terms of the injuries as well that's it's really it's a really long list at the moment so they need to get a few few players back and not just back they need them back fully match fit you know Martial didn't look particularly great on Saturday that that front three of Martial Rashford and Lingard at the start of Solskjaer's reign looked electric really electric but now you know they, they look a bit jaded they need a, a good you know two or three weeks to get back to full match fitness and, and looking sharp again This season, with your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League. It's just £8 for an eight-week trial. Fulham threatened to throw a spanner into the works and severely dent Liverpool's title hopes at Craven Cottage on Sunday. The former Red, Ryan Barbel, making it 1-1 with just over 15 minutes to play. But James Milner's late penalty spared Liverpool's blushes and sent them back to the top of the Premier League. And Alison, it was a horrible mistake by your namesake. It wasn't entirely his fault. If you watch it closely, yeah, it's a slice clearance by Milner. Van Dyke's clearly thinking, well, I've got to deal with this. And he puts out his arms, Van Dyke, as if to say, this is your ball to his goalkeeper. And then Van Dyke realises, I can't let him come for this. I have to head it to him. And Alison's just made a move towards the ball and he's not expecting the type of direct straight at his knees header he's going to get so he's surprised by it yes I think I think he's more than capable of dealing with it in that moment and it did look ridiculously embarrassing but it it was shared 
responsibility for the mistake between those three players, I think. Three mistakes in one, although Jurgen Klopp obviously had Alisson on his mind. Can you just tell us what happened at the end of his press conference? Thanks for that, Gab. Um, I indicated I'd like to ask a question, and um, the press officer said, OK, last question, Alisson. And I asked my question to Jurgen Klopp. Very good question. <laughs> of course. Unfortunately, Jurgen just went, oh, you'll have to repeat that because I was expecting it to be Alison. I was expecting my goalkeeper to be saying something. And then you realised... Then you Then you realised that might be slightly odd. So he went, obviously, you don't look anything like my goalkeeper. <laughs> uh, and I felt obliged to say, it happens to me all the time. It's... Then I had to ask the question again. So it came all about me. I mean, it's just, you know, and I don't like that, obviously. I just don't like it. it. It's just weird to me to think that he's probably done, like, literally a thousand press conferences in his career, right? And it's such a part of their routine. I just love the fact that he just starts spacing out, doesn't listen to your question. Maybe you stay, I don't know. I don't know what the hell he was thinking of. Maybe something else. And then he makes a joke, which is the kind of joke that, like, a child would make, but it's funny because it's him and he's likable. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, no, but a, I mean, on a serious level, I think that's quite clever of him because what Klopp does is he keeps, I think he actually finds the press conferences very boring and time consuming and something he wouldn't like to do a lot of. He's always itching to go away and analyse and prepare. He doesn't really want to sit there and have to, you know, make pronouncements when the match is, is, is barely over. He'd rather think about it and it, and you'd rather get on the bus or the plane and get it over with. So he finds a way every time of making it fun for him so that when you're listening to him, you're on his side because he's making it fun, whether it's something like that or he just likes a pun or he finds something funny and he will openly giggle. And it makes, you know, everyone everyone writing about the title race, it's, it's quite hard for them not to go with the Liverpool narrative because Klopp is so engaging. And I think on some tiny level that does help. It does help the movement along towards this hopefully wave towards them winning it because everyone's on Liverpool's side. It's sort of positive energy. Paul, let me ask you about Liverpool. Is it fair to say that they might be a little bit more nervous than Manchester City right now, do you think? And not if you look at James Builder and how he, how he converted that penalty on... Mm-hmm. On Sunday, if you can win games like that when you when you need to get that late winner and you know and you pull it off, then that's not a sign of nerves, is it? I think people were making that suggestion that they were nervous because they'd they drawn the last three away matches against Everton, West Ham, and, and Man United. But I don't, I don't think I think it was a bit of a red herring that I think that you know, these are international players. These these are players who played in the Champions League final last year, uh, got all the way there, and you don't do that by by succumbing to your nerves, I, I think they are a, a good, good squad with a, a strong character, and that's obviously comes from Klopp as well. So, I don't think they are looking nervous at all. Really, what, what I think is encouraging too, from Liverpool's perspective, and look, we, we can we can be stupid about it and just point the number of goals he scored, or we can kind of acknowledge that Mohamed Salah is not the player he was last year. But I thought in the last game. Right now, Alison, I don't know what your view on him is. We saw him miss chances, but we saw him get on the end of some very, very good chances. And for me, that's always a sign that that's always very encouraging because kind of believe in probability and random variance and the fact that he's going to start putting those chances away. And you worry when he doesn't get on the end of those chances. I, I, I thought his movement was actually 
really good. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the key word, movement. It almost doesn't matter if he's scoring or not because he's, he's tiring out defenders and making them worried because his runs are still different. He still does things exceptionally quickly and accurately that other people do not do. There was a period when he wasn't quite as... when he wasn't as sharp and, and as crisp. He's scoring more goals in that period, weirdly, I think. So... So it's, 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 he always contributes, whether it's his movement and pace and unsettling the defence or having a quiet game but getting on the end of something or winning a penalty. So you're, you're, you're squarely on the Salah bandwagon. Yeah, because the only way you can pair it back is to say, would the team be better without him on his current form? And the answer is emphatically no. Any club would take him now, even on this season's form. Well, how exciting is it to have possibly Joe Gomez and Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain back? Jürgen Klopp has suggested they'll be uh, possibly back in contention after the international break. How crucial could that be for Liverpool, Alison? Really important, especially as uh, Liverpool is still in the Champions League. And now they're at the stage they're at. All talk will now stop of it being a drain on the Premier League title hopes. It'll be a competition they want to win and they will need as many fresh, excellent players as they can get and it's been a while since we've seen Joe Gomez in action and maybe we've forgotten just how good his partnership with Virgil van Dijk was. It was almost flawless a lot of the time and um, Oxlade-Chamberlain offers energy and directness, sprightliness that if the team is tired after a, a trip in Europe will be most welcome. So there's no question about it unsettling the team, there's no question about it giving Klopp a headache over selection They'll slot in fine. They'll be fine. Absolutely fine. It's good news. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss FIFA president Gianni Infantino has been pushing for an expansion to a 48 team World Cup in Qatar in 2022 now on June the 5th all 211 member associations will meet to make a decision on an expansion then at FIFA's annual congress Gab you've written about this for the Times this morning what is the motivation behind all of this? Well, his argument is that we already voted to go to 48 in 2026, so why not do it in 2022 as well? Oh, and by the way, we're going to generate more money. He says $400 million, which which weirdly doesn't even seem like 
that much money when I was just thinking about it, but it is, it is more. Um, there's a there's a huge hurdle to this, which is that Qatar cannot stage a 48 team World Cup. FIFA's own feasibility study showed that. Uh, common sense does too. Qatar, as I discovered, is smaller than uh, East Anglia and has a smaller population as well. So it's just not going to happen. So they have to find a co-host when you want co-hosts from the region. In the feasibility study, they mentioned five countries that could potentially co-host. The problem is that two of those countries, Oman and Kuwait, uh, one has major airport issues. The other one has a crummy stadium. Um, So that's going to be difficult. And the other three countries that do have good infrastructure, uh, Bahrain, Saudi, and United Arab Emirates, Right now, they have a land, sea, and air blockade against Qatar, whom they accuse of uh, of not doing enough to fight terrorism. So I think it's still very much a question mark, and they have to get this sorted by beginning of June at the Congress because after that, you know, the qualifiers start and, and whatever else. That said, what I wrote about was, and we had this at the time when the 48 team thing first came up, but it really bugs me, is these people who talk about, you know, well, football's selling its soul, and we're diluting the quality. And I kind of feel like these people are like locked in like some sort of like time machine from like the 1970s because the World Cup isn't about quality and the best football. I mean, the best national teams in the world are all still there, but they're not nowhere near as good as the best football that we see week in, week out from the top teams in, in club football. So... I don't see why the World Cup should be your destination to go and watch quality football. The World Cup should be about developing the game and pushing the game. And as a proportion of the FIFA membership, 48 out of 211 is about 22%, which is roughly in line in what what it's been throughout the World Cup's history. So I see absolutely no problem other than some sort of weird, sniffy snobbiness, you know, looking back to the past with rose-tinted glasses, I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was funny at the last World Well, for, for all this diluted quality at World Cups, you know, you had countries like uh, like Holland and Italy not qualifying. You had Germany going out in the group stage, which was hilarious. And I know some numpty will point, oh, but look at look how rubbish Panama were. They lost 6-1. I'm like, yeah, in fact, that's the biggest loss, England beating Panama 6-1. That's the biggest loss since 2014 when Germany beat that other stupid, crappy minnow who shouldn't be there, Brazil, 7-1. So I I think people should just look at the numbers and just grow up a little. Okay, so 32 teams currently contest the World Cup. From what you've just heard Gab saying, Alison, going to 48, is that, is that progress or is it going to be overkill? Well, first of all, I want to say Gab's column is one of the best things you've ever written. It's oh, a beautifully, it. beautifully constructed argument, which I completely disagree with, but it's beautifully, beautifully <laughs> done. Very persuasive. But you were asked about motivation. You didn't mention Infantino on politics and winning votes and protecting his job. I mean, the more countries he woos and gives places at the World Cup to, the more likely he is to stay in power. It's all a power game, isn't well, he's, it? It's, it's, it's woo, woo, he's, woo. He's running unopposed. So I think that might have been the case before, but there are rumblings of that not being of of him being increasingly disliked by the. Well, that may be true, but nobody's nobody's running against him, and it's too late to make new nominations. So for better or for worse, unless he gets arrested or deposed or dies or resigns, 
but he needs He'll to have the job the power the next five years. He needs a power base because it's dwindling. So I think that is one of... Anyway, to answer your question, right. Natalie, that is one motivation. It's not all altruistic. It's about how it helps him keep his power. Uh, second point I'd make is it's going to cost me personally a fortune because I always buy a brand new three metre by five metre flag of every debutante in the World Cup for my house and it's not good economics. Thirdly, uh, Gab did touch on this um, about bringing it forward. It's an idea that's been voted on, it's being brought forward, but I don't see any point in bringing it forward if it's impractical. Why, why bring it forward if it's going to require hastily built stadiums Building and expanding stadiums that will have no use afterwards, that is non-economic and non-eco-friendly. It just seems to be demanding a lot of a region that yeah. can't hold it. That's a really good it. point. And, and then that's why like, I think the principle for the Team World Cup is, is correct. But I don't know that Qatar is the right place to do it simply because of the challenges, right? You've got, I mean, you have this, this, this blockade that it's really, really bad, the situation between these neighboring countries. And you have two other countries who... You're basically asking them, hey, go upgrade your airports and your stadiums in, you know, in the next two and a half years. That's what seems to me to be totally impractical. I don't know. Infantino's opponents, to be fair, say, well, he wants to win a Nobel Prize and he's hoping to broker some sort of grand peace agreement in the name of Gulf Brotherhood between Saudi and Abu Dhabi and, and whatever. But I am kind of feel like, hey, that's not really your job. <laughs> you know, like, well, why don't you stick to the football? Just accept. And the other thing... This should have been a co-hosted World Cup from the start. Hey, leaving aside all the allegations of bribery and whatever uh, that I think are well chronicled when it was assigned back in 2010, the idea of assigning a country that small is frankly demented. And what they should have done back then is just like, okay, you can have your World Cup, but you're going to share it with these neighboring countries. And they should have done it back then, not now with two and a half, three years to, to go. So it is demented to not only have made that decision and given it to such a small country to then add to the the yeah, burden of the thing hosting is, it. No, I, I agree with you, but the thing is, he inherited the situation, right? He he wasn't. It's not like it was his idea to have it in Qatar. In fact, I think he's been pretty open about this that he kind of inherited two giant turds in in Russia and Qatar, right? Three quarters of the people who voted on giving those World Cups in Russian Qatar are either in prison or indicted or dead or have been banned for life from FIFA. Right, that that was the absolute cesspit. And if you read the Garcia report, which is very long, but I, I did read it, you realize that all the countries, with the exception of Holland and Belgium, which is probably where we should, and, and their sort of eco-friendly green bicycle World Cup, it's probably where we should hold every single World Cup from now on. Every single one, even freaking Japan, was found guilty of violations to different degrees. You know, from the Russians destroying their computers to all those shenanigans that England got up to with a ridiculous football United fund and whatever, you know, that was the absolute cesspit that we were dealing with back then. So you get through, you get through that as best you can, Qatar. Why is calling it Qatar? I have no idea. But you get through Qatar. it. You no, what, what, why do you call it Qatar? Because that's how you say it. Well, not if you're Qatari. Oh, you said it right then. You didn't say okay. cuttery, did you? No. <laughs> but what, just get through it. Get get through it and give it the best chance it can have because the build-up to every World Cup has negativity attached to it. There's always going to be some amazing problem. And we just had Russia and it was massive success when everyone thought it would not be and we'd all end up in jail just for trying to celebrate a goal. This will be a... <laughs> Qatar will be a success, but it, it's as if he's trying really hard to make it not a success by asking too much of it. I do not... Other than it being a way of ingratiating himself, 
with many more countries that he's already done so, there's no point in actually physically thinking he can do this. What I find remarkable is this disconnect, right, where we watch the top leagues in Europe and we see Manchester City or Bayern or or Juventus or let alone Paris Saint-Germain just stomping all over everybody else, right? You look at the last five, ten years. Liverpool, great example. They're on track to get, what, like 97 points? You know, in the last ten years, we've seen people win the Premier League with record points totals. There's an enormous gap between the top six and everybody else. And yet, the World Cup, weirdly, isn't like that. It's a far more level playing field. We don't see those massively one-sided games. We only see them very, very rarely. So this dilution of quality thing doesn't make sense to me. now for our weekly predictions game where we try and predict the score in five featured matches. Now, Gab, you have been on fire of late, winning for three weeks in a row, and you went for a flurry of 1-1s this week. Yes, and I was almost right with the result of Craven Cottage, of course, where Fulham played Liverpool until that doofus gives away that that penalty. And by the way, James Milner's so cool. He mishit that. He did, didn't he, Alison? No. (laughs) So you went for 1-1 in that one. I predicted a Liverpool win, so the points go to me for that one. Now, neither of us predicted Sheffield United no. win against Leeds at Ellen's Road, um, which should have been a 1-1 draw, right? You could have yeah, said that, I yeah. think Bielsa would agree with me. Um, <laughs> neither of us predicted an Everton win over Chelsea at Goodison Park, with good reason, because that second one was never a pen, and Chelsea should have scored in the first half, so that should have been a 1-1 draw as well. <laughs> But, well, you went for another 1-1 at Molyneux on Saturday night. Which is what the score would have been if United hadn't stunk it up so much. Indeed. But what happened? It did finish Wolves 2, Manchester United 1, which I went for. So bonus points for me, which meant it didn't matter what happened in the Milan derby. Where I correctly predicted a 3-2. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think you did. It means I was victorious then this week, extending my lead. I finally won for the last few weeks. 15-10 I lead. Plenty of time to catch up. Let's move on to some quick hits. Instead, Manchester City's quadruple hunt is alive and well. But they need to huff and puff to come back from two goals down to overcome Swansea. 3-2. Hursty, any reason to be concerned? No, not at all. Not really. I I went down to that match and even at half-time, I was saying to everyone, you know, they're going to do this, they're going to come back. There was never really any kind of doubt that they would. If two goals um, down and you're sure they're going to come back? Yes, yes. What sort of contempt do you hold Swansea in? <laughs> I was thinking of playing a battle now. I probably should have done, to be honest. Um, um, yeah, Swansea are a decent team. They, they, they play very good football, which is you know nice to see a team not put 10 men behind the ball against City for a change and actually see a contest unfold. Um, but yeah, they, they just City were creating so many chances that you thought at least a couple of these would go in. Um and obviously one was offside, which was, you know, we should, Swansea were annoyed about um, and had every right to be. Um, but yeah, City looked, looked decent in the second half, so yeah, they deserved it. Now, for people who don't know, Swansea are mid to lower table in the championship, they is that are, correct? yes, yes. <laughs> Good to point that out, though. And Millwall won't also be... in the championship. Indeed, they are. They won't be making the trip to Wembley after a last-minute howler from goalkeeper David Martin means that they draw 2-2 with Brighton and then end up losing on penalties. Uh, Alison, where did that Martin moment rank in terms of FA Cup heartbreaks? Oh, it was awful. I mean, a ball sort of floats in and it's sort of hanging in the air for... It feels like forever. And it's he's off his line a bit. He needs to scramble back a bit, but... It's definitely 
And he did get to it, didn't he? It just sort of slipped through his, his fingers. And although that, that was a howler, it was the look on his face afterwards that was the heartbreaking bit because he could just tell he'd ruined it for his team and they were on the verge of knocking out yet another Premier League team and doing their thing in the cup. And Millwall are really good in the cup and better in the cup than they are in, in the league and there'd been lots of build-up about how they should put staying in the championship above cup glory and they clearly were giving it their all. So in, co- in the context of that, it was, it was truly heartbreaking. It's, it's, I, I feel bad. I, I worked with David's dad, Alvin Martin, as I'm sure you yes, have too, at TalkSport. Yeah. And TalkSport's Adrian Durham believes that if Alvin Martin had been on the pitch in 1986 for England instead of, I think it was Terry Fennick, then England would have won the World Cup because he would have kicked Maradona six times a Saturday in that run to the goal rather than trying to <laughs> nick the ball off him. And, um, yeah, the, all of English football would have been different. Mm, England might have been so galvanized by the 1986 World Cup that there might have been no Premier League. Imagine oh, that. Gosh. Wow, the fate of football. And there would have been a 124-team World Cup. Mm. How awesome. 128 you'd need to make it. So 124 doesn't No, but four work. of them would have been expelled for a political reason. <laughs> Natalie, one for you. Are we going to be talking about Premier League Preston North End next season on this podcast? Well, we the might. The PNE. The PNE, indeed. Yes. Well, David Moyes' old club. David Moyes' old club, indeed. Yes. They were fourteen points off the top six after losing at Rotherham on New Year's Day. Wait, aren't Rotherham really, really bad? They're not great. Okay. They're not great. But fast forward to now, they've actually embarked on a 12-match unbeaten run in the Championship. They won again on Saturday. It was a late winner, 94th-minute goal for Sean Maguire that sealed the victory against Birmingham at Deepdale. They're now only outside the playoffs on goal difference. And the man at the helm has done it before. Norwich boss previously, Alex Neal. Alex Neal. Exactly, exactly. Got them through the playoffs, Former didn't he? Former Hamilton Academicals midfielder, one. Alex Neal. That is the one. Got them through to the Premier League via the playoffs four years ago. And Neal says this on Preston. Uh, we go under the radar because nobody cares about Preston apart from those involved with Preston. Oh, that's awesome. In the Premier League, Huddersfield find themselves 3-1 up away to West Ham with 15 minutes to go and then somehow contrive to lose 4-3. Paul, Jan Sievert keeps getting angrier and angrier. Is he going to take that anger with him into the Championship next year? I think he is, yes. The, the 14 points adrift now, so they're, they're, they're as good as gone, aren't they? And he's so angry, isn't he? He was, um, was stunned watching the match of the day on Saturday when... He was asked if he could sum up his thoughts on the game, and he just replied with no. <laughs> I thought, and he had—he was so angry, you know, in his face. And he could, you know, he had every reason to be really because they, you know, that's to, to lose like that is must be so gutting. And that they're so far adrift now that they're practically down, aren't they? Would you keep this guy around next year? Because I, mean, I realize he took over a team that wasn't very good and whatever. But at least David Wagner was like, you know, a little bit charming, a little bit. This guy just seems to be angry, and I'm kind of like, dude, it's your team, your players, make them play better, right? Well, surely he knew that they were pretty much doomed when he took over. I mean, yeah. they, they were they were having a great season. I mean, they were punching well above their weight under Wagner, weren't they? So he he knew that he he doesn't really doesn't have a Premier League quality squad. So you know, he, he knew that he was, he was you know getting himself into so. Yeah, maybe you should probably tone down that anger a little bit. Mauricio Sarri says Chelsea played as well as they have all season for 45 minutes, and then the lights went out, and they stunk it up, and they ended up losing to Everton 2-0. 
Allison, any clever theories for why he didn't show up in the second half? And I think you can't blame Jorginho this time because he actually played okay. Yeah, no. It's well, other think, people who, who let him down this time. Uh, sorry, I said he didn't know why, but after the uh, game in Kiev, there was a huddle with, uh, was in a huddle with Sarri, and he said, he's always being asked about the system, and, well, it's my fault, I did. But anyway, he said, the system doesn't matter. <laughs> what matters is the players have to play to sort of perfection before I can start meddling with, with formations and so on. They have to earn the right for it to be a bit more free-flowing and open-minded about how they set up. So I think the reason they switch off is he is demanding too much of them mentally. He did say it it couldn't have been a physical drop-off because that would have been gradual. It was quite sudden. And I think they come out in the second half, they think they've done everything asked of them by him in the first half. They do not get a breakthrough. And I think they lose faith subconsciously in what they're being told to do. It's not working, all these short passing... It's just not happening for them. And if you lose faith in a, in, a, in a manager who's very strict like that, it can crumble quite quickly. I think that's... I can't think of a better way of explaining it, is that he's asking them to concentrate and do so much that's still quite new to them that, that mentally they sometimes just think, why? Why are we doing this? Because it's not reaping us any results. So it's not the system anymore. It's his man management psychology now. Well, it's his insistence... And it's not the like-for-like substitutions? It's his insistence on them maintaining what he wants them to do regardless of what the score might be at half-time in this case. So most managers would say, ooh, yeah, you're playing well, but don't seem to be breaking Everton down or, or, or you know, making them make lots of saves. Let's, 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 let's switch it around. He wants them to do exactly the same again. And then he changes it by sending on Loftus-Cheek mm. and Hudson. And then it all looks a bit like, of a panic. Then it yeah. all looks a bit of a panic. I mean, just, to, just about that, I think there might be something in that in the sense that even at Napoli, teams would rarely play super well for 90 minutes. They'd have these bursts of like 15, 20 minutes per half, score the goals. And then after that, it was rather humdrum. But if you don't score, you pay a price. Okay, Gab, one for you or perhaps two for you because I don't really know what I should ask you about. Should I ask you about the Milan derby or a certain Messi and his hat-trick for Barcelona against Betis? So do you want to talk about both quickly? I'll talk about both very quickly. This was Sunday night, and after a weekend of, I thought, pretty dire football, not much to get excited about, boom, they both come along at the end, save the weekend. Uh, Inter, unlikely winners in the Milan Derby, winning 3-2 without Mauricardi and Raja Nainggolan. Terrific end-to-end stuff. And this is a message for, for, for Otamendi and Kimpembe. Um, it was hilarious that then Milan had a chance to equalize deep in injury time. Daniel D'Ambrosio came out and threw himself at the ball, basically with both arms clutched behind his back it looked as if I don't know it looked as if he had cut off his arms just because he's so paranoid about VAR handballs you know Messi's hat trick uh, they beat Betis for one they played really well which Barcelona haven't always done this season it was tremendous he gets after the third goal I retweeted this he got a standing ovation from the Betis crowd reminiscent of the one Cristiano Ronaldo got in Turin last season playing for Real Madrid I don't know what else to say that we're just extremely privileged to to live in this guy's this guy's lifetime. Um, and again, if you haven't seen it, find the clips because it's worth it. Okay, that is it for now. Many thanks to our guests today, Alison Rudd and Paul Hurst. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online or on your smartphone or tablet. It'll cost you just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. So that means you go and you want to search the Times subscription for more information. Just plug it into your favorite search engine. Well, we'll be back on Thursday, Gab. 
ahead of Euro 2020 qualifying action. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum.